welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And uh, I got some very interesting things to cover today. As you know, this podcast is kind of done in three parts. One critiques, you know, general political Second Amendment or firearms related issues. The next is critiquing some of the gun culture, some of the gun content that's that's put out out there. And the third part, which is actually my favorite, are questions and answers. Because I always find them to be very, very intriguing. Questions and answers. Sometimes I have to modify questions a little bit so that they make a little more, a little more sense. And that's usually not the ones that are sent in to me, but the ones that are asked of me in, in person. So... Anyway, those are the uh, three parts of the podcast, and this is episode number 7171. So, I uh, want to get to a couple quick things. Number one is, you know, have you ever watched the news, and, and you see this, they, they always come out with a poll. And there's always a poll that says this, and, you know, the ones I really took umbrage to at the, in the beginning were, 75% of Americans favor stronger gun control. And then you find out that, well, maybe that's not true. Maybe it's the sample size they get. Uh, Remember the 2016 election. Trump was supposed to lose by 10 points across the board to Hillary Clinton, you know. All of these things are are agenda-driven. As I think my way through this, they're they're just agenda-driven. I used to do a little bit of polling completely different context and things but um, you know the, the problem with polling is you you have a very difficult time getting the correct sample that represents the population and when they come down to these well we polled a thousand adults you know were they likely voters were they eligible to vote if you poll a thousand dull adults in prison you're going to get a much different um result than if you do a thousand adults in San Francisco or Topeka, Kansas or you know you see what I'm saying so a lot of times these polls the agenda drives the poll they know what they want to say and they create a poll that that somehow justifies it and uh, so I, I you know the other thing I'm skeptical of just as a side note is you know a new study has been released which says, and it can say anything. It could say eating shoe polish is good for you. I mean, they'll create a study. Someone will do a study where they will find out that that is actually good for you. It's, it's, even though it's completely not true, there's always a study. And you have no idea the scientific method used in the study, how good the researchers were, what the premise were, what the controls were. They just kind of throw out the, the soundbite. A study... And they want you to assume that it's, you know, like the Mayo Clinic or some, some very high-speed, very scientifically done organization. And, and the fact of the matter is it's, it's probably not. So uh, the same thing with polls. Every time I see a poll, I say, well, who did it? And then I kind of say, well, you know, I don't know that they can get a large enough sample size. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big poll fan. I think polling should actually be illegal uh, five months before a presidential election or an election cycle, just because it it's you know terrible. The way they do it is just plain terrible. So that's my that's my feeling on polls, and how do polls touch guns? Well, as I said before, there's always some poll out there going, you know, this many, you know, and it's always some tremendous percentage of adults favor stricter gun control. And the fact of the matter is that's just not true. One more aspect of this is just the timing of polls. There are some polls that, like right after, say, a Walmart shooting or something, they'll do a poll right away before people have had time to kind of process it in context. So they can also get a skewed result there, too. A lot of these polls, yeah, 90% of Americans favor more gun control. Well, if they do it right after an incident, yeah, that... that uh, um, is what they're going to get from their sample size because a lot of these people haven't processed it yet. But I think the sample sizes are so rigged anyway that, um, you know, it doesn't matter that if, if it's 75% or 95%, it's still equally invalid. So there we go. That's, that's the deal on polling. Now, of course, 
this leads into our next, the next thing is why is an agenda, why is polling used to push an agenda like gun control? Why, why is it that, that it's just one of the tools they use? And, um, you know, you have to look at the agenda itself. And, and you've seen it the last couple of weeks. Um, if you don't have weapons, you're not going to defend yourself against these hate mobs, these ugly, vicious, anarchist mobs that are running all over the country now. Uh, we're at a point where, you know, i got the 4th of July coming up. And I have some bunting and a flag that I put on my modest house to, um, you know, to decorate for the 4th of July. And I can sit out on my, my little porch and, and kind of, you know, watch the flag flap in the breeze a little bit. I don't know if I'm going to put it up this year simply because the media and the, the psychotic left have generated so many hate mobs. I just wonder if I put it up. Are people going to come start come running across my lawn to tear it down? I don't think so where I'm physically located. But the fact of the matter is it can happen anywhere. And uh, I, I call this the me, this is the real Me Too movement. The real Me Too movement is I want to be a part of this too. And that's what these little millennials and a lot of other people, hardcore liberals, want to do. They want to be a part of this larger movement and all the rest of it. So they're going to go do something individually. And I don't want to be the, the recipient of their individual actions. So, you know, it, it goes to the larger picture of why do people push gun control? Well, the people who push it the most are the same people instigating these mobs, instigate, instigating this violence. And if I don't have weapons or reasonable weapons, I can't defend myself. You saw, and we talked about in the last podcast, what happened to the, the guy who tried to defend his uh, uh, store with a sword. He got beaten half to death. Um, if he has a single-shot black powder firearm as or single-shot shotgun, uh, he may get one, but he will get overwhelmed. Uh, it goes back to the meme we talked about of, you know, if you have to ask the question, you know, why I need an AR-15 and a 30-round magazine. Well, you haven't been watching the news. So, you know, it's if they dis effectively disarm us or disarm us of effective weapons, effective weapons, we're at their mercy. I mean, do you want to see your house burned to the ground because you can't defend it? Do you want to see your business burned to the ground because you can't defend it? Do you want to see your family, close friends, all that, you know, basically at the ravages of these mobs? I mean, uh, no, I don't think that that's what we want. And if we if we give up our Second Amendment rights without a fight, this is what's going to happen. And face it, the only way forward for the Second Amendment, whether you like it or not, is Donald Trump. He's the only way forward. And if you want to see... How bad this has become. Um, you know, look at, just look at these people, even on the news, you know, the sound bites they put out. There was a councilwoman from Minneapolis, and of course, just by her appearance, you could tell, you know, young 30s, looked like the product of the broken university system and all that. And uh, they were talking about defunding the police. You know, that's another aspect of this. If you have no weapons and they defund the police, where are you? Where are you? Um, it, it's ridiculous. And, and she was saying, well, we want the police defunded. And, and the, uh, the anchor person asked, well, and you, you, uh, who do you call? Who do you call if the police have been defunded There's no and disbanded? There's no police department. Somebody breaks in, who do you call? And this, this councilwoman had the audacity to say, well, you have to admit that that comes from a, calling the police for something like that is something that comes from a position of privilege. And, you know, it's, it's shocking that someone could actually even think that way, that calling for help in the face of a criminal assault is somehow linked to this phony privilege argument that they keep trying to stir up.
So I suppose their desired end state for all of us is that we have no effective weapons, no weapons at all, fundamentally, and that we have no police to call, and somehow this mob rule, their hate, their, you know, they, but these instigators, whether it's the, you know, the obviously drugged up councilwoman from Minneapolis, or whatever else, whether it's Andrew Cuomo, or whatever kinds of liberal idiot that can gin up these, these crowds, uh, they're, they're in charge. I mean, they, they have you completely under their thumb, just like they did during this pandemic, where they got, a lot of them got power drunk, and remember, you can't do this, you can't do that, and none of it, a lot of it didn't make any sense. You know, you can't go walk in the park. Why? Well, because of the pandemic. Well, if I'm out there and I'm six feet away from the nearest person, I should be good to go. And they, but you could go into a crowded Walmart and drop money, and that's okay. So this is another example of why we cannot trust politicians and what is actually they're going on. And if you want to see a test case, their little Petri dish for this, look at this Seattle Autonomous Zone. And believe me, here's where the hypocrisy of gun control comes in. They talk all this gun control smack. What are their little anarchists, their little Antifa and all that, inside that Autonomous Zone, what do they have? They have weapons, and chances are a lot of those weapons were organized and provided by somebody. So these instigators behind the deal at least tacitly approve of that. And, you know, should they kind of get their way, you will find that everybody but you, myself, and the police have effective weapons. All these other people, these agitators, these left-wing um, I don't know which phalangist organizations will have will have weapons and we will not. That's why we have to fight them just to the bitter end. And this Seattle thing could get ugly. This could get seriously ugly. That could look like, I don't think it will, but that could look like a little mini Fallujah there if they decide that they're going to put up resistance. Because having to take building by building, even a small area in a city, if you have to secure it street by street, building by building, room by room, takes a lot of manpower and it takes a lot of time. So unless they just put down their weapons or just or just drift away, scurry away like rats, um, this could get very, very ugly. And this is starting to look like a lot of stuff that happened in the 1960s. Remember, Symbionese Liberation Army... Uh, all these other weather underground, all these things, these groups were armed, and that's what made them particularly dangerous. Um, was that they didn't believe in just you know passive resistance or or civil disobedience or any of this other nonsense. They they were actually out trying to kill people, and there's there's you know you can do the research. You know I guess if you Google 1960s radical groups, you'll see. There were a lot of these people, and there's a lot of people who are there who encourage them. There are a lot of people who facilitate their movement and hide them. They have a lot of allies. So, you know, this is why you do not give up the Second Amendment. And just to get into that mindset a little bit, and this is kind of the last comment on these, this upheaval that we're having, this little social upheaval. Everybody wants sympathy for this guy, George Floyd. Everyone wants sympathy for the other victims, regardless of the circumstances. The other victims of, of these you know, police actions where someone has died, and it's usually been a black person that has died. They want the sympathy and apologies and charges for all of that. And that's not unreasonable. Not unreasonable at all. But what I've not seen anyone do from any of these organizations, from any of these people who are self-anointed spokesmen for this, 
I've not seen anyone stand up and say, you know what, we're really sorry that our protests were used as a cover for violence and a cover for stealing, looting, and property destruction, and that a lot of people got hurt. We're sorry for that. That was not the intent of our protest. Nobody says, nobody has said the sorry word. They've called for violence to stop. But So my only assumption is that they really don't care, and that on some level they get their jollies out of uh, the fact that there are these mobs out there, and it's they're terrorizing people and destroying things, ruining businesses, you know, the restaurants, the stores, the, you know, all the shops, all these things that people have put their life's blood into, and, you know, they're destroyed in a single evening or over a series of evenings. So no one has said, I'm sorry about that. No one has said, that's wrong. No one has, you know, we're at the position where do two wrongs make a right? I mean, you know, is acting that way justified? And they'll say, oh, yes, there's rage and all this. That's a bunch of bullcrap. That is complete bullcrap that is just by, you know, proffered by apologists. Whenever I hear somebody say that, I say this person, this is not a real person talking. This is, this is a mouthpiece. This is a Democratic Party stooge who doesn't understand what the reality is and is just repeating a talking point. So that's the deal with the, uh, you know, gun control, the Seattle Autonomous Zones, defunding the police. I mean, there's no part of any of that that I see any, any goodness in. You know, I don't see any goodness in defunding police, whether it's cutting budgets or eliminating police departments. I don't see this Seattle Autonomous Zone as anything other than just anarchy. And it'll be like the Occupy movement where they found out that in these Occupy camps, you remember Occupy New York, and people were getting raped inside the camps and assaulted and beaten. They'll find out the same thing is happening in this Autonomous Zone. But, um, you know, it, it just tells you, never surrender the weapons. Never, never surrender your right to possess effective weapons. Okay. Hey, another piece of news that is kind of, uh, with everything else happening, this has kind of slipped under the radar a little bit, but Hornaday, you know, and Hornaday used to start out, they were a bullet manufacturer, you know, made hunting and, and especially varmint bullets. They were really known, known for that. From there, they've expanded into a lot of shooting accessories. And, and some of that is stuff that, you know, they buy and kind of put their their name on, their their factory name, their, their corporate name. And, um, you know, some of that is, is really good stuff. Some of that is really good stuff. Um, I've always liked Hornaday products. And they've always, you know, do a good, they do a very good job. They've also gone into kind of, semi-premium ammunition it's not a lot of stuff i use because i i use a lot of kind of like ball surplus you know that kind of ammo so you know their their stuff is is more like semi-premium hunting ammunition very good very good ammunition but to the point they have developed a cartridge called the six millimeter arc and arc stands for advanced rifle cartridge and I don't know if they developed it at the military's, U.S. military's behest, or if it's just something that they uh, uh, developed on their own and submitted. But they have announced that they have secured a DOD contract for the cartridges. So my assumption is, and I have not heard any military announcement, so... I have no inside track or no inside info on any of this, but I will give you what I can surmise. I First of all, I surmise that it is, it is not going to be any kind of replacement for the M4 and the 5.56 in conventional army units, you know, conventional army divisions. It's not going to be that. I think they have probably signed a contract with U.S. SOCOM to provide this cartridge. Now, what are the advantages of this cartridge? Why why would you even begin to why would you want it? You know, what can it do that 556 cannot do? So that's that's where it becomes a little bit harder. 
uh, the what Hornaday's statement essentially said, and I'm paraphrasing, is that they it it has a longer effective range than the five five six, and somehow U.S. enemies were learning that if they stayed, you know, five four to six hundred meters away from our our troops, that our our rifle fire could not reach them. So they, they kind of felt safe beyond that. I, I think that that is Hornady and not necessarily DOD thinking. Because we, of course, have snipers, DMRs, machine guns, more a whole host of weapons that can engage targets beyond effective rifle range. That's, that's why we have them. And, and they're very good. They're very, very good weapons. So I don't know that we need a longer range rifle cartridge. So my guess with all this is it's U.S. SOCOM. And I think what is driving it is that the fact of the matter is, if you wanted to go up against a first-class, high-end enemy special operations force, you would effectively run across people with the most advanced body armor. And 5.56 may be having trouble, or there may be a projected performance gap against targets wearing the most advanced body armor or maybe even projected body armor. So six millimeter with the right kind of bullet may be providing um, the additional performance that they want. There's not even a real... I don't know that there's any other valid reason. I, I mean, the problem... And why would they go with six millimeter ARC? I'll just start there. Uh, it can fit in standard AR actions, which something like the 243 Winchester cannot, because there are other six millimeter cartridges out there. Six millimeter Creedmoor. There's the the old 243 Winchester, which if they if they wanted to rebrand that, and make it cool, they would call it six by fifty one NATO or something, and make it sound cool. But um, there's all kinds of little six millimeter cartridges out there that have been used for different things and in even extended long range shooting there's some that that are out there for that but the reason they would design a new cartridge because heaven knows we have enough cartridges is because it can perform in the standard ar platform so it's obviously six millimeter instead of 6.8 it can allegedly use and i don't know how wide or thick this is but it can allegedly use regular ar magazines which is a bunch of which is a bunch of nonsense, because every cartridge that has been touted as well it can use a regular AR five five six magazine. And two examples that come to mind are um, fifty Beowulf and um, ah, what's the other one? Three hundred blackout. Three hundred blackout. Both of them usually perform poorly with regular unaltered AR fifteen um, five five six magazines. So they'll probably have to get their own magazine for it, which won't be a big deal. But I don't know that it's going to ever have the 30-round capacity of the 5.56. And if it's a bigger cartridge, even if it's just a little bit bigger round, um, do you really want to have a 20-shot rifle that you're going to use all the time? So my, my sense is that this is going to be a very much a special mission type of piece of equipment and cartridge. The rifle and cartridge will be special mission designed for if there's an extremely high-end target that's very well protected and they need this ballistic they need this ballistic advantage that's what i think it's going to be i don't think it's going to be used in precision rifles i don't think it's going to be used in in anything except it needs to be able to punch through stuff that the 556 cannot because for every other reason the 556 is is still pretty darn good and I would even say that the excuse they use for their for their ranging saying that well beyond 400 yards well there are 556 DMR rifles that can strike out to 600 yards quite easily and uh, as they've seen you can you can actually get out even a little bit farther if, you know provided you have the right kind of optics and you have some of the you know enhanced ammunition so uh, I think it's a, I think it's a penetration decision that this stuff can perform 
against a known or projected uh, capability that's out there. So that's what I think the 6mm ARC is. And the fact you really don't see anything from DOD tells me, that tells me it's SOCOM, Special Operations Command, and that tells me that it's probably going to be a very limited procurement deal. You know, it's certainly, it's actually much less news than uh, SOCOM adopting 6.5 Creedmoor for some sniping applications. You know, the, the old days of special operation, you know, it isn't, it isn't John Wayne and the Green Berets anymore. Um, the old days of special operations where you had the standard conventional force equipment, those are over with. These guys, we put so much money into their training that, you know, buying, the, buying this additional equipment is really a small investment given the overall investment we have in training these people. And so... You know, it's, it only makes sense, but they're going to have a wide, that they have a wide variety of weapons they can select from, uh, as opposed to, well, just use the one-size-fits-all M4, you know. They'll still use M4s for certain things, but it'll be just one of the, the weapons they have access to, and, and not the primary one that they have to use all the time, because there is, there is nothing else. Okay, now we're going to get into my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And this question came to me from my cousin, who I, I don't know very well. Um, his parents died early on, and, and he's, he's older than I am, so uh, our paths never really crossed uh, very much. But he knows that I'm somewhat of the family historian, and so he said, what is the most interesting family gun story that you have? And, uh, well, I, th I think there's several of them. Um, not to bore anybody. This is like showing home movies. This is like showing home movies to people. Um, the f one, one that immediately comes to mind is that my grandfather was a hunting guide for Clarence Birdseye. The guy, you know, Birdseye, frozen foods, the guy who, you know, frozen peas and, and uh, green beans and all that kind of stuff. Birdseye, you know. What, whatever, I don't even know if they're still around as a brand anymore, but they, they used to be huge. They, it, when frozen vegetables and things came out, Birdseye was the big, the big player in all that. So my grandfather, who was predominantly a bird hunter, from what I understand, he, he died uh, before I was born, but uh, he had, you know, not fancy, but utilitarian shotgun, and he was... He was quite a wing shooter, and, you know, he could shoot. So uh, that's always interesting that someone relatively famous, although I imagine if you, you know, drop the name Clarence Birdseye anywhere, I don't, know that, I don't know that anybody would recognize it, but that's one of them. The uh, a related story to that, and it's not really guns, but uh, my grandfather had a small deer, and my grandmother or my mother, I should say, my grandmother, whose wife was there, of course, and, and so were my aunts and uncle. They had a small dairy outside of a small town in New Jersey, right next to the Lakehurst Naval Air Station. And as a child, my mother saw, and her father, my grandfather, saw the Hindenburg, the big Zeppelin, fly over, because it used to land at Lakehurst and disembark its passengers. That was the only facility that could do it. Interesting side note is, you know, the big tower on top of the Empire State Building was supposed to be a place where you could tether these Zeppelins. You know, if this sounds like a bad idea, it, it, it certainly is. And they were going to tether the Zeppelins there and people were going to get off it and, you know, kind of wander down through the building and all that. Uh, that, that turned out to be entirely impractical. So due to winds and just over the city and, you know, how do you refuel the thing and all kinds of problems. So they would go to where the large military Zeppelins at the time were, were kind of the facilities for those. So they saw the Hindenburg fly over and they did not see the fire when the Hindenburg burned, but they could see the light, the, the, the reflection of the fire in the sky. You know, there was a big light patch where while it was while they were not there because they were, you know, like two or three miles off the, the installation, 
they could see the light from the fire as the Hindenburg burned. So it's not a gun story, but it's pretty pretty cool. Uh, I think about that sometimes and think, wow, you know, so a lot of times, you know, how close are you to to history, to a to a piece of uh, really interesting history? The only other the only other gun story would be, and this is this is kind of a cool cool thing was. Uh, in the late 1950s, my father and some of his friends, and I don't know how they did this, what the mechanism was, or any how any of this worked, but they they purchased land in Wyoming next to one of the uh, parts of the Medicine Bow National Forest. They purchased it from the government for like five dollars an acre, you know, because it was just this kind of you know out in the middle of nowhere land, you know. Wasn't developed, didn't have any water, didn't have any anything. And they built a hunting camp there, and they used to go back there every year and hunt. And I actually went there a couple of times. Um, it was a super interesting place. And now this is going back to the late 1950s, and before I ever started. I didn't go there until the late 1970s. But in the 1950s, they found a guy who was, he was pretty, he was pretty old. And they had him build some, just log cabins on this land. Because there were some trees there and, and all this. And this guy, I believe his name was Frank Bryan. And I actually met him when he was very old. He was like in his 90s. So he was probably in his late 60s, early 70s when he did this. And he used to make his living as a young man capturing wild horses on the Red Desert and selling them to the U.S. Army Cavalry. That's how freaking old this guy was. And, and again, he was, he was you know, the... He could have walked right off of the set of Gunsmoke. He was the authentic Old West cowboy, carried a six-gun. I think it was a, a Colt... It was Colt Single Action, and I think it was in 3840. Um, you know, he was the real deal, the authentic thing, and he built these cabins. And, you know, he built them essentially by himself. They... I don't know what other kind of help he had, but I do know he used horses to, like, drag, you know, he'd cut down the trees and then drag the logs with the horses, and using some sort of pulley contraptions, I'm sure he would use the, the horsepower to, to raise these things and all that. Uh, used some peg construction, you know, using big, big wooden pegs, and then also putting the, um, the stuff, I think they call it chinking the logs, where they put the, the kind of the mud concrete stuff in between the logs of the log cabin you know keep the cold out and make sure there aren't and seal up any gaps uh put a couple windows in had a giant wood stove which had to be from the 1800s i mean this thing was big and so that was a very very neat place and there are all kinds of stories i could tell about it but i just thought that was you know a very neat place by the time i had gone there the camp is, was very well established, and it was it was very remote, and you could not really get there uh, without a four wheel drive. Although there are stories of people who who, so it was a uh, really fantastic place, and uh, there were there were still the wagon ruts from the old Oregon Trail that where things had gone by, and you could still find wreckage of stuff that had been kicked off the wagons. I knew several people who found. Uh, now remember, these things have been at that time had been laying out there for over a hundred years, but they uh, they found old brass beds and things that that you know the wagons were too heavy and people would throw them off, and it was just amazing. Um, and the wagon ruts were still there, you know. It was amazing. I imagine it's probably gone now, but um, it was a very very interesting, very very interesting place and kind of a uh, unique place to visit where you could step back into time. Uh, other family gun stories I really won't tell here. They're mostly about sentimental pieces that uh, belong to my family or belonged kind of in the area where I grew up. So um, there are a few of those. And so, you know, maybe I'll tell those at another time. But those are kind of two interesting stories. Uh, the Hindenburg and then the, uh, you know, the kind of the uh, last little window into the Old West. Okay, next question is, what do you think of in-range TV's mud tests? Uh, you know, frankly, I, I, don't, I don't really follow them. Um, I think they're anecdotal. I think that, you know, a few of them have been, when I was more, 
happily disposed towards in-range TV. I used to watch it, but, you know, with them kind of this whole thing of the muted movement and, and all the rest, it just, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of hands off them now. But what do I think of mud tests in general? And I'll, I'll go with that. And, and theirs kind of fit into this thing. Uh, number one, you know, what does it really prove? Well, does it prove that if you gunk a weapon completely, it'll, it'll stop working? Uh, that's kind of intuitively obvious. Uh, I think the only revelation that kind of came from the in-range mud test is that the AK is apparently not quite as mud-proof as people have led us to believe, you know, the, the Vietnam stories of, you know, they pick these things up out of the muck and they'd never clean them and they'd still fire, all, all that. Um, may be true, may not be true. doesn't appear to be true when you're using, the, especially that kind of rocky, you know, kind of lot of mineral silicates and all these things that are in the soil in Arizona. So it appears that that isn't a uni it isn't universal that anywhere in the world that you know you can pick up this gunky AK that's been sitting in a some sort of a puddle of mud and and, and nastiness and uh, it'll pick it up and start shooting that that may or may not happen. The other one, which I think was actually a little more relevant, was the fact that the AR-15 is a very closed system and in fact resists the intrusion of foreign matter like mud reasonably reasonably well so i think that's that was like the biggest the the two kind of little nuggets you can take out of there not to not to run a pun or or something with um nuggets but um you know that's what the that's what the the thing showed but essentially you could run mud tests from now until the end of time and some people will accept it some people won't um so i don't think too much some of them are interesting some of them really aren't um, you know, it always seems that the weapons they like seem to do well. Weapons they don't like seem not to do so well. I don't know. You know, to me, it's just kind of, um, it's kind of reality, reality TV for gun creators on, on YouTube. Okay. And it can be entertaining to watch for, for, you know, 10 minutes or so, but I wouldn't draw any hard and fast conclusions from it. And I certainly wouldn't, uh, base any kind of decisions on how these these really unscientific tests are drawn so and that goes across the board i mean you just can't there are guys who who will show you something on the internet and and with their rifle their components at their time it it seems to come true but it's actually just not true in all cases so uh, i would be i would be very uh i'd be very careful about that all right. Next question. Uh, lever guns in cities. Are they a good idea? If you and I, I will sit there. I, I kind of rephrase that question, but it's like, what do you think about lever guns for defense in cities? Obviously, this is foremost on everyone's mind because we have rioters, arsonists, protesters, all kind of mixed up together, and you don't know who's who and what's going on there. Plus the fact that if you're in a large city, you are most likely, well, I can't, I've got to phrase this right, because there are large cities that are not in blue states. But in many places, large cities are in states that have heavy gun regulation. So in California, um, lever gun is about as well as you're going to do. I mean, I know that there are California compliant semi-automatic weapons but you know they they're kind of feeding through the top fixed magazine kind of deal so uh it's it's it which are just is just outrageous when you see the kind of mob violence that's going on and again it fits in that's what gun controllers want to do they they want to make sure that you have a weapon that you cannot defend yourself with against mob violence because they stir up these mobs and they want to make sure that you cannot defend yourself and you can do a much better job with an m4 style carbine and a 30 shot magazine than you can with with all of these quote compliant style weapons but be that as it may um and you, you have to live in the real world, and the real world is, well, I can buy and have this, but I can't buy and have that. So, which which one of the this is the best? And I would say that you're, you're doing pretty well if you've got a uh, lever-action carbine um, 
you know, I would go any of the pistol caliber carbines are, are good. Anything like that it, it can help. Whether it's Winchester, Marlin, even Henry, um, you know, you just you just pay your money and take your choice. I do like having. I don't really care for the way the Henrys load. They they kind of load, um, kind of like the original Henry. Kind of like the uh, um, my Browning BL twenty two. It has that that little latch on the end, and you lift out this this cylinder from the magazine, drop the bullets in one at a time, push this thing down. Doesn't have that nice little loading gate where you can just top off the magazine. So um, I would get one with a loading gate. Winchester Marlin makes them. You know, other people have made them. I think there's a Mossberg out there, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, the ones I would stay away from are the 410. <laughs> Who, whoever thought that was a good idea. I remember they, the Winchester came out with the 94, the 9410, they called it. And it's, you know, the lever action shotgun. It looks like, it looks like a regular rifle, but it's a smoothbore 410. That is not what I would go for. That is not what I would do, so... I would uh, I would go with those. I would stay away from, you know, any kind of tricky firearms like the mare's leg. I mean, unless you really kind of know what you're doing. That those are more fun style firearms. So even though they look like they they've been built on the mechanicals of a lever action, um, I don't know that that's a that's a great idea to have. Limited capacity, kind of awkward, and and all the rest. I think you're better off if you want to. If you want a portable and a nice handy rifle, you you just want the saddle ring carbine, and you can get them in a variety of calibers: 44, 38, 357. There's some out there in 38, 40. You know, all, all those great old calibers. They they'll and that will give you good service. So, um, yeah, definitely, I would have that as opposed to nothing, and I would have have that uh, you know kind of handy. It's a uh, it can do the job. I mean, it can do the job, but it's certainly not optimum. Okay. What gun lessons, if any, are on TV, the movies, or in the other media? And I guess that's like books, magazines, and things. I'm talking the entertainment, not gun magazines or, or gun firearms-oriented television or things. I, I would say very little. There's very little that I would, that I think you can glean. You can glean a lot of bad habits. There's very little practical stuff you can glean. Um, that's just the way it goes. I mean, uh, entertainment is designed to entertain. It's not designed to educate. And they, they tend to distort the effects, the use, even the capacity of firearms to make their movie more entertaining. So... Uh, I would say that uh, they you, you won't learn very much from that. Uh, you won't learn very much from that at all. So I would stay away from getting any kind of advice <laughs> or any kind of thinking there's any kind of lessons on television that are that are going to be something that you can actually use. Okay, here is another question. What do you think of the Larry Vickers 1911 from Springfield Armory's Custom Shop? Well, I haven't seen one, except I've seen a few pictures, and it's it looks like a essentially a, a higher-end, and I think it's MSRPs for $1,400, so street price could be a little bit lower, I suppose. Um, looks like a nice 1911. It looks like it's, you know, comes from... A reasonable thing. It's not a custom build. It's certainly not a a craftsman one-off assembled build. But it looks nice. Uh, I kind of put it in the same category as I do the Thunder Ranch revolvers and gun sight scout rifles and things. You know, it's branded, and you're paying for the branding. So you're probably paying an extra two to three to four hundred dollars to have some dude's name on it. And that's just how I see it. the The funny part about this is is Larry Vickers kind of started out as a 1911 kind of gunsmith guy a little bit. Then he really got into Glocks, and then Glocks were like the big thing. And he kind of crapped on the 1911. He and his pal Ken Hackathorn 
we're repeating, well, it's an enthusiast weapon, meaning you kind of have to keep it tweaked and, you know, you have to kind of be able to, to do things to it yourself, you know, replace parts and things. In my opinion, that's all a bunch of bunk, but, you know, be that as it may, the guy craps on it, but, you know, guess what? Nobody's buying customized high-end Glocks. People buy Glocks because they have a price point that people can afford. And when people have more money, they buy something other than a Glock, and other you can you can infer better if you want. I mean, I, I just think there are other guns out there that people like. So nobody's going to buy a customized Glock, but there's always a market for a higher-end 1911. And uh, there just is, and it's, it's just the whole thing. So it's funny that the the style of pistol that they were crapping on a couple years ago is the one they're peddling now to put some put some cash in their pocket. So uh, buy it if you want to. First, first and foremost, I don't want anything with some other some other guy's name on it, like he's like he's super dude or something. And um, you know, I don't want somebody else's bling on it, like Thunder Ranch. You know, a, a Smith and Wesson revolver with a big this gaudy gold you know logo on it. Uh, some people like that, and if you do, that's fine. Go buy it. But having that does not make you one of those people. It just makes you a fanboy, in my opinion. And, and you know, get it. I, I myself like comparatively simple and unadorned guns. I think there's a beauty in a firearm which is, you know, in its, in its design kind of pure form. I really like that. Um... I don't really like heavily embellished guns, although I may be changing a little bit because I do kind of like some nice grips and, and things on guns. But uh, I'm not a I'm not a big uh, gun engraving guy or anything. Um, you know that was all kind of a 1960s and 70s thing. You know, oh man, I got all this I got two thousand dollars worth of engraving on my my uh, three hundred dollar revolver. Aren't I cool? And it's like, well. You are, but, you know, that, that engraving is an embellishment, and then the gun becomes more of a totem or, or something else than, a, than the functional tool. So that's kind of what I think. Uh, you know, nobody's going to buy the Larry Vickers 1911 and go out and, and you know, fight the forces of evil. It's just not going to happen. You know, you know as well as I do, people are going to buy them. They're going to take them out to the range, maybe, and it's going to be this little cool thing that they want to show around to their friends. But it's probably not something that's going to get used as a serious defensive weapon. It's more of a more of a status symbol and a and a uh, possession. So that's that's kind of how that is. Okay, next one is very interesting. Have you seen Nine Hole Productions shooting videos on YouTube? The answer is I have. Um, I like them. I actually like them a lot better than in-range TV. Not saying they're perfect, but uh, it's too good. The ones I've seen, and I've not seen them all, and, and I don't know that I would see them all, but they are essentially uh, two guys who go out and, and they test a variety of rifles at various distances, starting at 150 yards, going out to 500, sometimes even a little longer, depending on the, uh, the rifle. Uh, you know, and they're trying to make it as scientific as possible. They tell you what the ambient conditions are, you know, the temperature and wind and all the rest of it. Uh, again, it's nothing that's exact, and it's an anecdotal test, but it's interesting to watch because they do do they do some different weapons. So, um, one guy is an ex-military guy. He was an ordnance officer, so it's not like you know, he's he's very very common sense and very very you know matter of fact about it he's not you know trying to be i'm the super secret high speed guy who's schooled in all the the death arts you know no that's not him that's not him he's he's very common sense but he, he also has a lot of confidence and you can tell he knows what he's doing so i i do like that a couple of the other things that, that they do is, I know they do some pistol reviews, I haven't really looked at that, and they kind of flip on and off for that. Uh, one guy's the observer and the other guy is the, the shooter. 
I enjoy the videos. I know they're they're on Patreon as well as YouTube. So if you want to uh, sponsor or be a patron, uh, they're they're very very good. Uh, very very good videos. A lot lower key. They don't come to all the conclusions. They they're very very uh, based on the performance of the rifle. So I really like that quite a bit. I think they're I find their stuff a lot more entertaining at this point than uh, some of the other stuff that's out there. So yes, I've seen them, and yes, I think they're very good. And it's called Nine Hole Productions. That sounds like that'd be a golf thing to me, but it's Nine Hole. And if you just Google that or, or search that on YouTube, you'll you'll find these guys. Okay, another question is, what is the difference, or is there a difference between 7.62 by 54 rimmed and 7.62 NATO? I've noticed that some guns are chambered for both, and these were Chinese copies of the Druganov rifle, the Dragunov, I guess I should say, and the, um, you know, a lot of other kind of rifles that came out of the Warsaw Pact. You, you could sometimes get them in two versions, one in 7.62 NATO, the other in 7.62 by 54 rim, Comblock. So, what is the real difference between them, and does one have an advantage over the other? Okay. Well, first of all, I'll say that um, the advantage is that you get much better quality ammunition for 7.62 NATO than you can for anything 7.62 by 54R. Even the sniper ammo, quote-unquote, manufactured uh, by the Soviet and Russian military is really not that great of ammo. It's it's better than the other ball ammo, but it's not, uh, it doesn't anywhere near approach the kind of match ammo you can get for 7.62 NATO. So, you know, it's, it's again, the components uh, really make a huge difference. Uh, velocity, you know, this, it's not big enough to worry about, who cares, uh, but you can get much better performing components. There just aren't, there's just nobody making 7.62 by 54 rimmed high performance, super accurate ammo, because there's not that many guns. As a matter of fact, you could probably substitute not that many with any that could take serious advantage of that. I mean, you don't see heavy-barreled bolt guns in it. You don't see super. You don't see AR super accurate AR-10 sniper variants in it. You don't see any of that. You see kind of the PSL, which is a big AK. You kind of see the Dragunov, which is it's not an AK, but it's a similar type of system. So you see that, and they have the semi-automatic triggers. They don't, they're don't; they not really optimized as super accurate match rifles the way an AR-10-style rifle can be. So you're just not going to see that in the semi-automatic. You don't see anything in the bolt guns that is even close. I mean, Moise and the Gants are Moise and the Gants, and they, they will fire the cartridge. But, um, you know, you can get a lot of different, a lot of different variables in the manufacturer, you know, especially, and it's not fair. It, it is absolutely not fair to take a wartime manufactured Moisin Nagant that was done under the pressure of an of a serious enemy invasion, where you know about ten percent of your population is getting killed. Uh, it is not fair to take the gun that was produced under those kind of pressures and compare it to a modern matched out bolt action in 7.62 NATO. They're really from different eras, so you have to kind of factor that in. The other thing is you don't find, since it takes 311 or 312 bullets, you don't find the match bullets in the variety that you do with that, uh, that you do in 7.62 NATO. You know, you just don't find the variety of components because there's no real demand for them. And there hasn't been the load development. Nobody makes, to my mind, now maybe Norma or Lapua do, but I don't think anybody really makes a match grade case for a 7.62 by 54R. They just just don't exist. So, you know, uh, although theoretically they should be in the same category, the quality of components, load development, 
the, the more advanced design of the 7.62 NATO, the variety of weapons that have been, it's been put into or have been developed for it. Um, there's actually no, there's no choice between the two. If you're looking to shoot, if you're looking for a historical, interesting piece, seven, six, and it comes in 7.62 by 54R, like a PSL, hey, that, that's what you got. And that's, that's, there's a certain amount of coolness in that. But if you're looking for something to shoot, you want the 7.62 NATO, something that you can shoot, shoot well, and improve with. That's really what you uh, want to deal with. Okay, here's another question. Is the current unrest in the inner cities a passing fad, or is this the new normal? And if so, what should people do to help defend themselves or make themselves more resistant to the kind of violence that we're seeing? Okay, that's, that's kind of a loaded question in this very racially charged, um, really kind of uh, uh, terrible environment where there's a lot of revisionist history going on. Uh, I would say that uh, what I would do is I would be very careful because this is going to change the police forever. A uh, couple of things are going to change. And one of them is, I don't think anybody is ever going to stand for the national anthem again. And I think that flag disrespect is going to go to. A lot of people like myself who are military veterans don't like seeing that. Don't like seeing it. But disrespect to national symbols is going to be, that's going to be the new norm. So think about that before you spend any money on the National Felon League or uh, a Central American Baseball or whatever all this nonsense is. Uh, professional sports needs to take a hit if they don't honor the flag. And, and every indication is they are not going to do it. If they even have the teams out on the field, when the anthem is played, half the players are going to be kneeling and showing disrespect. That's the way it goes. You're going to see a lot more flag disrespect in the uh, in these protests if they continue. And they show no real sign of winding down. I mean, they, these kooks are out there. Now, the good news is it's basically been confined to the inner city. So I've got a little rule. I'm not going into the inner city for anything, for any reason whatsoever. I don't go there often anyway. But now I'm staying away. I don't care. They can rot in there. Um as far as I'm concerned, police departments can draw big circles on the map and say, hey, these are <laughs> these are denial of service areas. We're not going in. So if you got the god drunk guy sleeping in your drive-through, uh, we're not going to come get him because we're not going to be a part of this nonsense. And uh, I think that's what's going to happen. I think there's going to be a retreat of people who are saying, I don't want anything to do with cities. I don't want anything to do with some of this nonsense. And, uh, you know, if, if the NFL went away, the National Felon League, you wouldn't see a tear in my eye. But I realize there are a lot of people who like that. Uh, there's going to be other social changes are the wave of political correctness. I don't know that you're going to have a statue to anybody anymore. Uh, statues may just go away. They're ripping down every statue they can find. And it's only a matter of time before they get to war memorials. Only a matter of time. Nobody thought, and all these people were giggling when they thought it was just going to be Confederate statues, and you know, in the little in the southern towns and cities. Now it's everywhere. Every statue is getting, no matter who it is, is getting vandalized. So we're going to be without statues. So we're going to be without a national anthem. We're going to be without statues, and we're going to be without effective police because, face it, the police are going to retreat. It's only human nature that they are going to be a lot less aggressive and they're going to let stuff go. Now, we went through this in the period of the 1970s. This is history playing itself out again. And the crime rates between the 1970s and 1990s, the crime rate went through the ceiling. That's why they had that 1994 crime bill, which put a lot of bad people in jail because that's where they deserve to be not out on the streets perpetrating more crime. 
So your Second Amendment rights will come under assault because that's the next target. First it's the police, then it's going to be you, your AR-14 or your AR-15, and that's who they're going to come after. And if God, if they win this election in the fall, it is not going to be pretty. So I would say buy what you need now, and, and the prices are going up. Even even clunky clunky guns, kind of like like if you've seen the Walther Creed on, uh, I think it's CDNN. It's been they've been selling those for like three or four years now. Walther quit making them probably three or four years ago, and they just they just had a bunch of these things, and they were selling them sub three hundred bucks. Uh, the cheapest I saw them at was one time they were like two twenty nine. And I'm almost sorry I didn't buy one just to have as a clunky, you know, gun that, you know, hey, carry it around and if you lose it, so what. But now those things are up to like 340 because people are buying. People are buying anything that shoots a bullet. The exceptions to that are like match pistols, like 22 long rifle match pistols. Those are not real hot right now. But anything that's got a, a good defensive use is is basically hot right now um and i think companies are going to be hard pressed to keep up i think we're going to see this at first i thought it was just a covid thing and if it had been you would have seen the market start slacking out now but um, i think we're going to see riots through the summer and maybe even through the fall and i already told you i think that's a conspiracy to try to uh sway an election but I think you're going to see the gun market, if it ever returns to normal, that won't be until next year. And the ammunition market is going to be tough also. So if you don't know how to hand load, you might want to learn. Because right now you can still get components. Some stuff is sold out, but you can still get components. It's only a matter of time before that dries up. Uh, if things keep going, people want, people start hoarding. And we all saw it with a pandemic, you know. People who had a room full of packs of toilet paper because they thought somehow there isn't going to be any more, so I may as well get as much as I can. They do the same thing with ammunition. I've got a 38. I've got six boxes of ammo for it. There's a seventh box. I'm going to buy it, not because I'm going to use it, but just because I'm going to possess it. So all of this is happening, and I would say that the best thing you can do, stay away from Stay away from crowds. Stay away from people. Because that's where all this trouble is. These high-end shopping districts, be very careful. Because uh, they're going to have the guys with the, the pants around their ankles. And, and, and all this thuggery is going to go on down there. It's going to go on and happen in these places. So stay in the small towns. Stay away from crowds. Be vigilant. And... Just like everybody's tired of the uh, virus thing now. Everybody's tired of the COVID thing. You know, basically, when people tell me to put a mask on, I want to tell them to stick it in their ass. You know, I'm tired of it. I'm not afraid of the virus. I'm tired of it. Have a nice day. People are going to get tired of these riots, too. Very tired of it. And if any of this is exported to small towns, which I don't believe it will be, I think we've seen the I think we've seen the crest of this. But if it does, then things are going to get very very ugly. So it would behoove you to have a firearm for everyone in your family who can responsibly wield one. Even if it's a Ruger, you know, uh 22 target pistol, hey, that's better than nothing. You know, even if it's a very modest firearm, even if it's a pump-action 410 that you've, you've got in the closet, anything you have, I would make sure is in very good condition. I would take it out, test fire it, make sure that uh, the ammo you have for it works. I would make sure that it's very, very clean, very, very, you know, if you haven't paid a lot of attention to it, now is the good time to do that. It's also a good time to get people to practice a little bit uh, if you can get some ammo and make sure that everybody can function and fire it so they're not trying to fire it for the first time under the horrible stress of, of being attacked. A couple of other things are, 
you know, you might want to have a neighborhood watch group because you and your neighbors are in all this together. And even if your neighbor kind of looks and smells like Festus from Gunsmoke and you don't really care for him very much, uh, now might be the time that you, uh, you realize that you have some, uh, some mutual interests and uh, mutual security can be a beautiful thing. They keep an eye out. So have them keep an eye on your place. You keep an eye on their place. Uh, look for people who don't belong in your neighborhood who are perhaps doing a reconnaissance for some sort of uh, some sort of action. Um, they've been on the TV, and I think it's just blowhards, but they've been on the TV saying they're going to bring this to the suburbs. Well, we'll see. We'll actually see, and it'll be unfortunate if they do, and you are not prepared because... You've seen it. They create a mess. They can create an incredible mess. And, uh, you know, those are about the best pieces of advice that, uh, that I think I can give. But I think the police will change forever. Our national symbols and statues and our national anthem will unfortunately change forever. And we are not going to have the same country. It's going to take a lot of work to restore our country from the damage it's been done just over the last couple over the last uh, month with all this and uh, you know the only the only thing that's uh, the big the big part of this the thing this all hinges on is the election in November so don't forget to vote don't forget to realize what is at stake well that's it for another edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you like it is and this was episode number 71 and we've renewed our uh, Podbean account for another year so we're going to continue to be the voice in the wilderness who's telling you the truth Um, whether it's about politics the gun media or anything else that can affect law-abiding gun owners we are going to we are going to keep after it and we'll keep answering questions and we're going to give you the best possible insight that we can give you and as always feel free to avail yourself you can send a question you can leave it in the podbean comments and i will address it in the podcast or you can uh, go ahead and email it to me at kbmakel at aol.com. And uh, I will get to your stuff, and I will answer it as best I can. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>